We're continuing our series, Questions Jesus Asks. And I have enjoyed the series a whole lot, just kind of looking at the life and ministry of Jesus in a little bit different way. And I, I've, I, through it, I've seen some of the humanity of Jesus and the teacher that Jesus was, and that a great teacher continually asks probing questions so that his students or her students will get to that moment of aha moments of intellectual assent and knowledge and something that they can grasp, like one plus one equals two, but also this teaching component of asking questions so that students can personalize it and make it their own and begin to apply it and live it out. And that that's what Jesus did in many of these moments when he was asking questions of people and doing life with them. He was having these teacher moments of aha that they finally got it, but also these heart transformation moments where not only did they intellectually get it, but they received it in their heart and their mind and their soul, and the beginning of transformation happened. And that's what teaching is all about, is transforming the heart and the mind and the soul for today and also in the future. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10 as we look at this final question together. And it's a great question. It's the question that Jesus asked a student uh, of the Word, of the Bible, and not even just a student, but actually a seminary professor. And this guy came to him, and he had some questions for Jesus. And Jesus looked at this seminary professor and um, asked him the question, you are a student of these of the Bible. You're a student of the Old Testament. You tell me what it says. Again, this seminary professor, I'm sure, had been in the same moments of, don't just ask me questions. Let me ask you some questions as well so you can make the Bible real to life for you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And here we are in the story. One day, an expert in religious law, a, a seminary professor, and honestly, probably one of the best-known seminary professors of the day, because he's been kind of put forth to represent the religious people to ask this question of Jesus. They had done it a couple of times before without success, and so they're like, hey, we, we need to bring in the big guns. And so here's the big gun, the the seminary professor, he's written a lot of books and he's popular on, he's got the most downloads on Amazon and his podcast is going crazy because people love to listen to his teaching. And so here he shows up in the midst of a crowd with Jesus and stands up and asks this question. And I'm sure that everyone in the crowd knew who this guy was or had some idea of who he was. And he asked this question of Jesus, teacher or rabbi, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a great question because he's, he's saying all of these studies, all this thing that I'm doing is about receiving eternal life. And, and that's what people are thinking about at that time. That's why they're there before Jesus is asking religious questions about eternal life and religious life. And so he asked that question, what, what, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus, being the great teacher and rabbi that he was, replied with a question. What does the law of Moses say, or what does the Old Testament say? How do you read it, O oh, great seminary professor who's written books and articles and talked in podcasts about it? Well, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, 
with all of your mind. And also love yourself as your neighbor, or love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, right, great, cool, you get a sticker on the little board. You got the question, the answer right. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions of standing up and asking such a question. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, I believe that the seminary professor was, again, continuing to try to trick Jesus. For you see, Jewish people really struggled with this question of who is their neighbor, that they were kind of, they set themselves apart, and that there were certain people that were their neighbors, literally their neighbors, that they couldn't come in contact with because that would make them unclean for worship. And so that they struggled with this idea of neighbor. And so Jesus, here in this moment, sees an opportunity to kind of throw things upside down. One of the things I've noticed and I've seen about the life and teaching of Jesus is he talks about living life upside down from the norm. That when other people see opportunities to take advantage of people, he sees opportunities to love and to offer grace. In so many different ways that as followers of Jesus, we are to live life upside down from everyone else. Well, here's one of those moments. Jesus responds to that question of who is my neighbor with a story. And so Jesus says this, a man, or literally a traveler, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this was like a common occurrence in their day. That people would travel from Jerusalem to Jericho and back and forth. And this was about a 17-mile hike on Rocky Road. So imagine just kind of being in the Rocky Mountains and you're on a trail. And it's, it's an you know, kind of an easy trail, so to speak. There's some ups and downs. But the thing that makes this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho unique is not the rockiness of it necessarily, but the fact that in the trail, on the sides of the trail, are lots of caves and places for people to hide and to rob people. So this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was one that was made often, but if you were wise, you wouldn't make this journey by yourself. You would do it in a group. You would travel in a caravan to kind of protect yourselves from the robbers and the thieves that were waiting in the caves and in the outcrops to to get you, to steal from you and to hurt you. And so this traveler had been making this journey, it seems, by himself. And so he had, in some ways, he had done this to himself. He had made an unwise decision and made a trek on a dangerous road by himself. So here the traveler is, and he's going along, and bandits are there, and he's attacked by the robbers, the bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So imagine here's this traveler who had made an unwise decision on a dangerous road, and he's beaten up, and he's left half for dead, and all of a sudden there's other people. Again, this is a common road. Other people begin to pass by him, and have opportunities to meet his needs. So the first person that has an opportunity to meet his needs is a priest in verse 31. A priest is a a religious duties kind of guy, and his religious duties required him to be clean. If he was going to work in the temple, if he was going to do the duties that were required of him as a Jewish priest, he couldn't touch anything unclean. 
So I imagine as he sees this person living or being there, he thinks that maybe he's dead. And if I touch him, if I enter into his mess, it will make me unclean and I can't go to the temple and and preach or do the things that he needed to do. So he happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, the scripture tells us in verse 31, he passed by on the other side. So he had an opportunity to check on the guy and see if he was actually dead or living or what the situation was. But he saw it from afar and far enough that he decided to pass by on the other side and, and totally not get involved in the situation. Now, you would think a preacher would want to get involved, that he would see, oh, listen, I've been preaching on this. I've been talking about it. I should get into to the mess with this. But no, he goes to the other side. So that's the first person. Another person who's on this trek from Jerusalem to Jericho that had an opportunity to engage this hurt person, this traveler, is in verse 32, a Levite, which again is a a temple worker, someone who would have been greeting and caring for people. And he came to the place and he saw the traveler that was injured. And what did he do? He passed by on the other side. So here we have two religious people. They know the Old Testament law that the lawyer before, the seminary professor had been talking about. These are the people that should know the word of God inside and out, and they've learned it from their infancy. These guys know what God's word says. Jump into people's mess and help them. But they're so worried about keeping some of the religious rules that have nothing to do with Scripture but have everything to do with this order that they've set up that they don't help someone. Compassion was trumped by religiosity. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. Their compassion was trumped by their desire to keep the religious rules. So next, verse 33. A Samaritan. Okay, now, if you've grown up in and around church, you've heard this story hundreds, if not thousands of times. And through hearing it, it's kind of lessened the impact of it in many ways. Because when we hear Samaritan, we always kind of get to the idea of a good Samaritan, that Samaritans were good people, and that that was the perception of the day. Well, listen, that is the opposite of the truth in that day. And so when Jesus says a Samaritan, the idea of a person pops into their head, and it is not necessarily the same one that pops into ours. So whenever Jesus would say Samaritan, this were a notorious bad guy, a traitor, uh, the last person that you would think that would help someone. Actually, you would probably think he was one of the ones that was robbing because he's the enemy to the others, the priest and the Levite and this seminary professor. So listen to this. So a Samaritan, this bad guy, as he traveled, came where the man was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. That literally his empathy rose up and he saw him as he was hurting and half dead and beat up and stripped naked and he jumped into his situation. So the very person that the religious teacher would have said there's no way he would have responded with compassion and pity and empathy is the very one that does. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. It it was costly for him. Then he put this man on a donkey and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them 
to the innkeeper. Now listen, this is a costly thing that the Samaritan is doing. In that day, two denarii would have covered a full month's worth of hotel time. So he's saying to this innkeeper, hey, here's two denarii. This guy is really hurt, and I have jumped into his situation enough. I'm willing to pay for a month of staying in this hotel, in this inn, to get better. And I'm going to come back in a little bit, and if he's still here or if his needs are not fully met by this one month's amount of money, then I will take care of the rest. I will invest in this person's need. Even though him getting jumped, him getting robbed, him being in this situation was because he chose a dangerous path in life alone, and he was setting himself up for failure and hurt. But I'm jumping into this situation, and I'm not judging any of that. I'm here because I see that he has a need, and I'm willing to invest in it. And it's costly for me. And again, so you can see that the audience that's there, the religious teacher is there, and he's thinking, whoa, this is counter to what I would have thought. I would have thought that the priest, I would have thought that the Levite would have had compassion because they're the ones that know God best. They know about him. But in that moment of opportunity to have empathy, they didn't have it. They literally moved as far away from helping as they possibly could. And that here's this person who we all think is bad in the moment saw the need of the guy and jumped in with empathy and counted the cost and literally gave what he could give to help this person get well. Even at his own inconvenience, he slowed down his trip. He slowed down his travel. He spent an extra night at the airport hotel to make sure that this guy was going to be good. And even maybe even rerouted his travel so that he could come back later and make sure that his healing had been complete. That is compassion. Look, he said, after him, look after him and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law, the religious teacher, the professor who'd sold all these books and had this well-known podcast says this, the one who had mercy on him, go and do likewise. Listen, that's a powerful story. What I want you to get is this, is I want you to learn two new words today, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Listen, the religious teacher had great orthodoxy. The priest had great doctrine, correct teaching. The Levite knew great doctrine, true doctrine and true teaching, but their orthodoxy, the right teaching, didn't lead them to orthopraxy, right living. Correct living. So what Jesus is saying to this religious leader and the crowd there is, look, you can spend as much time as you possibly want learning the ins and outs and nuances of the Bible and have a wonderful assortment of knowledge. But if that knowledge, that correct teaching, doesn't lead to correct living, then it is worthless. 
what Jesus is kind of pulling back for them is saying, listen, there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of great stuff in the Old Testament. But the thing that you even, as you come into worship and you recite that the Lord our God is one, and that I prove that I love him and that I've given all of myself for him, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, the way that I prove that my worship in this worship setting is real is by the way that I love my neighbor as much as I love myself. So he says, listen, you can keep gathering in worship settings. You can keep having Bible studies and life groups and getting all this correct teaching, but if it doesn't impact your Monday through Friday living, then it's worthless. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy doesn't make sense. You can't have orthopraxy without orthodoxy, but you can't have orthopraxy without orthodoxy. Listen, for us, there's no limits on who we're to love based upon even the faults that there are of theirs. So this guy who made a bad decision and traveled down a dangerous road by himself got caught. How many of you have traveled down a dangerous road that you knew most likely might end in you getting hurt and you went anyway? That's life. That's us being human. For us as followers of Jesus, our orthodoxy should tell us that when we run into and we walk into, and maybe it's even us, a dangerous road and things have gone bad and someone's hurt and literally left for half dead because of the dangers of the situation, that instead of walking around to the other side, that we should have empathy. That we should jump into the mess and, and understand that it's going to cost us. It may cost us time, it may cost us energy, it may cost us money, it may cost us in some way, but grace isn't cheap. And that the same grace that we've received through Christ that we're to offer to others, that love is not cheap, that the same love that we experience through Christ we're to show other people. And so that when we have empathy upon others' situations, whether it's their doing or not, is not our place. We're to jump in and to get in the midst of the mess and to love them and to bind their wounds and to place them in a, in a situation where they can heal up so they can get back to doing life. There should be no limits on who we are to love. There's no boundaries. Jesus kind of flipped this over that generally the Samaritans weren't to be loved because they were unlovable. And that here in this story, the unlovable loved like the ones that were the models should have for us as followers of Jesus. There's no boundaries to our love. As the little kid's song says, red, yellow, black, white, they are all precious in his sight. There's no boundaries to God's love. It doesn't matter what color, what ethnicity, your socioeconomic background. Jesus gave his life for all. And that's our boundaries. As followers of Jesus, that's our boundaries. There's no red, yellow, black, or white. There's no, that person can give something back to me in return because they have enough money to do so. When you count the costs, 
It's truly us living in grace and in love and saying, I see someone's need and I can get in it. I am even here on this dangerous road with others so that in this moment, I can be a help. I can be the hands and the feet and the bank of God for this person. There's no limits. There's no boundaries on his love for anyone. And then also this, feeling sorry is not enough. Feeling sorry is not enough. Listen, church, we can feel sorry for a lot of situations. I'm sure the priest and the Levite felt sorry that the guy was in that situation, but it counted the cost and it was too much. They had an opportunity to respond through the orthodoxy. They had an opportunity to orthopraxy, and they chose not to. Feeling sorry is not enough. Sorry, compassion, empathy, and pity that moves us to action is the right way for us as followers of Jesus. Jesus had pity on people and empathy literally putting on their shoes and walking a mile in their deal, their situation, jumping in with them, counting the cost, and saying, I'm here to walk with you. It's costly. It's going to cost you something. Love hurts. Literally, it hurts. Love costs. It could be a financial cost. It could be time. It could be energy. It could be whatever. But as followers of Jesus, when the opportunity along dangerous roads that we have to jump into someone's mess, it's going to hurt, it's going to cost, but love does. Love does. That we as followers of Jesus, the way that we love, the way that we do, the way that we respond, the way that we're empathetic, the way that we are expressing pity, isn't by feeling sorry but moves us to action. Church, I pray here at Cross Point Community Church that that's what we're known for. And I believe that that's a part of what we're known for, is that we are a church where love does. That when we see someone in a situation where they're hurting and they need help, that we don't even count the cost. We say it is our opportunity to bind the wounds of the hurt and to bring them to new health. Love does. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that love does. That love does is what puts you on the cross. It's what drove you to give your life for us. And Father, that we have all walked dangerous roads knowing that there could be opportunities that we would get hurt. But for whatever reason, we decided it was worth the risk. And that people have come alongside of us and bound up our wounds and got us back to health. Father, that that's our call. As ones who've accepted and received your grace and have been healed by your wounds, Father, that we're to have empathy on those on the journey and road of life that are hurting and need help. Father, may you move us not just from being full of orthodoxy, but may the teaching and correct teaching 
lead to right living. We may we be known as a place here at Cross Point where God's word is taught, that the good news of Jesus is expounded and pressed out, and that it transforms our hearts in such a way that we are a movement in a way of Jesus, and that we have empathy and compassion, and where we are known as a body of believers that love does. We love you because you first loved us. May we love others well as we pursue worshiping and knowing you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.